So we can evolve our bodies and we can evolve our genetic expression and we can learn faster and we can overcome pre, uh, you know, a priori tendencies, things that came before us, such as the tendency for obesity, the tendency for cancer, the tendency for addictions of various types. Welcome to the first episode of a very special series here at Living 4D with Paul Check. As part of our Evolve 2019 event, Paul will be hosting five weekly solo podcasts on the topics of personal and professional evolution. Each episode will leave you with actionable information to use straight away to fuel your own evolution. First up, Paul explores how you can evolve yourself physically to become the fittest, healthiest you. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for information about a special Instagram live session hosted by Paul, as well as news about our Evolve 2019 grand finale on May the 3rd. Well, hello. I'm very excited to begin this special event series for the Czech Institute and for you, where I'll be sharing my insights and practical tips on how we can evolve physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and how we can evolve into the ultimate expression of ourselves through our vocation or career. I'm excited to share my insights. They're not just academic insights. They're the expressions of my own personal, professional and spiritual life experiences, and it's my dream to support you and the students, customers, and followers of the Czech Institute and the Living 4D podcast to facilitate your own evolution so that you can experience more freedom and creativity in your life. When we have freedom and creativity, we become an inspiration to others, and that triggers a ripple effect, and soon we're inspiring others to evolve with us. And the result is that the world evolves into a safer, more beautiful place, not only for human beings, but for all living beings. Because as we become conscious, more conscious, we realize what we are and how everything outside of us is an aspect of ourselves in our inner life. From the air that we breathe, to the water that we drink, to the food that we eat, to the beautiful sunshine that looks like it's outside us, but moves inside of us and does all sorts of neat things within us, from making vitamin D to elevating cortisol levels and creating alertness to giving us the joy that anyone who lives in Sweden or Denmark knows can only come from Father Son. So, this is our first part of the series Evolve Yourself Physically. So, let's see what I have to share with you today. First of all, what does it mean to evolve? Well, to evolve means to gradually develop, especially from a more simple, or a simple to a more complex form. I would also propose that, with regard to human beings, that as we we Uh, As we evolve, life becomes easier for us. So when we're more evolved in how we manage our movement, for example, it's not such a stressful thing. We don't have to worry about whether we know how to do an exercise or where we're going to exercise or things like that. 
as we evolve through our sense of movement, we know what it feels like when we're not moving enough. We know that we have lots of options. If we can't get to a gym, we can go outside and go for a walk or go for a jog or find a hill and do some hill sprints or do some yoga in a park. So it gets a lot easier as we evolve emotionally. We learn how to manage the flow of our emotions. As we evolve mentally, we learn not to believe everything that we think because we learn the hard way that sometimes our thoughts are not accurate representations of reality or are not congruent with other people's observations. So in many ways, we evolve from simplicity to complexity, and then we finally go to what I refer to and is sometimes referred to metaphysically as a second simplicity. So as we go through this uh, series, I'm going to share this concept of evolution from simplicity to complexity and back to simplicity, because the second simplicity is really the stage of the wise man or the wise woman. If you think of how we evolve, first we're a child and we're really quite simple, but we're very codependent upon other people to support us. We have to learn a lot about gravity, about sharp objects, about fire, um, about things like glass, and we learn that dogs bite and cats scratch. And so as we learn, we, we progressively become more complex mentally and even emotionally, and we develop language, so we become more capable of interpreting our own inner feelings in the context that we can share them with other people. And then as we become a teenager and we get our heads full of thoughts, and then we some of us go off to university and get more and more ideas, and we find ourselves living in very complex ways. We have all sorts of machines and tools and gadgets and computers and smartphones and calorie counters and biofeedback devices strapped to our body and things like aura rings and other devices. And we find ourselves living in a sea of information and sometimes our heads are so full that even though we're very smart in a conversation in a coffee shop, part of us knows that we're out of touch with the simple things that life is really uh, made of and that are important. And so we evolve to paring those things down and we become more simple, yet more stable and more capable of seeing ourselves in the world and understanding ourselves better, and through that process, understanding other people. And that second simplicity is the birth of the wise man or the wise woman. When it comes to things like diet, for example, we're often fed whatever we're fed by our parents. We don't think about it much, and we just have to trust that we're not being poisoned by mom and dad and other people, which unfortunately is often the case these days. But then we end up getting food intolerances and find out that we have food allergies and we realize that maybe our youthful shape is disappearing and we start reading diet books and we get more and more complicated and often find that the more we know, the worse our body seems to look and feel. 
And then you come across somebody like myself or other wise people that have already been through these cycles, and you find yourself realizing once again that what's really important is not only simple, but it's much easier to manage, and it's much more congruent with nature. So these are some of the concepts that I'm going to get into with all of you, and uh, I have a lot to share. I'm very, very excited. And for those of you that are students of the Czech Institute already, some of these uh, things I'll be sharing for you guys will be quite basic, but hopefully you'll enjoy the review. So I'm really working uh, in this vein to share things that I think everybody should understand, whether you're 12 years old or 89 years old. Uh, because we know for sure now that the brain is capable of changing at any point throughout our life and learning. And so we can grow and we can still evolve right to the last days of our life. Before we begin getting more into the issues of evolving ourselves physically, I'd like to begin with a thought experiment that I developed some time ago to help my students understand more about themselves physically, uh, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. So what I want you to do is think of what our bodies are made of. Our bodies are made of elements, and these elements are called earth. We're all familiar with earth, water air, and fire. Fire is the sun, and fire also shows up as the warmth in our body, which comes by way of metabolism. And the things that we eat couldn't be here without the sun. Almost any fruit or vegetable is the product of photosynthesis, which is the plants and the trees converting sunlight into food through their own amazing internal processes that are a beautiful expression of nature. So when we look at this fact, let's do a little experiment. And don't worry about what the numbers are. In other words, what you say for earth or water, etc. as I go through this exercise with you. But what I want you to do is, if you're in a position to close your eyes and go inside yourself while you're listening to this, then that would be great. But if you're driving a car, you can do it just fine. So right now, what I'd like you to do is just feel your body for a second. Look at your hands, touch your hands, feel the density of your bones. And then ask yourself, if I had to guess what percentage of my body is made of earth, something solid, You see, earth has form. We build houses out of earth, out of clay, such as adobe homes. We build straw bale homes. We build houses out of wood. We build structures out of metal. Those things all hold form. So, when you're looking at the concept of what percentage of my body is made out of earth, One way to look at it is, 
how much of what I think of as my body is made of something that holds form. My bones hold form. My connective tissues hold form. If it wasn't for my bones and my connective tissues, then there'd be nothing to hold on to the water. It would just leak everywhere. If it wasn't for the arteriovascular system, our blood would just diffuse out and we'd just be a walking puddle. So once again, just do your best to guess what percentage of your body is earth. And if you can write this down, that's cool too. So we can look at the numbers. Now ask yourself, what percentage of my body is made of water? A lot of you will know what the scientific uh, number on that is, but I won't spoil the fun. So, thinking about that, what percentage of you is made of water? So far, you have a number for Earth. Go ahead and write down your number for water. Now, what I'd like you to do is take a nice, deep breath and just fill yourself with air and just... Imagine, you know, you have to have air to breathe. It has oxygen and other gases in it. Ah, oh, it, It's in your blood. It's all over the place. It's in your cells. I don't think it'll be too hard for you to figure out it's going to be a smaller percentage than the earth or the water. But we know there's air inside of us because we would die quite quickly without it. If we stop breathing, we don't have long, about three minutes before your brain starts to die, five minutes, and you usually have irreparable brain damage unless you are Wim Hof, who through learning to master his mind is able to do quite amazing things, as are a number of yogis and spiritual masters. But most of us need a pretty regular supply of air, and we will be talking more about air as well. So what percentage of you is air? Now, what percentage of us is fire, warmth, or metabolism? That's the hardest one for most people. But if you just imagine that, remember your solar plexus, which sits right behind your belly, between your belly button and the bottom of your rib cage where your abdominals attach, you have a massive nerve plexus in there called the solar plexus, which has as many or more nerves than your whole spinal cord combined. And even the brainstem in some uh, resources suggest that. It's a lot of neurons. The solar plexus means sun plexus, and it largely controls our digestion. And uh, that's critical for metabolism. We have to have things to metabolize. We have to have something to put on the fire. And so, if you just imagine what percentage of me is made up of this process of fire or warmth. 
So now look at all those numbers. If you've done it right, it will add up to at least 100% because that's what your body's made of. Earth, water, fire, and air, as the alchemists have been telling us for thousands of years. So now what I'd like you to do is say, well, when I think of myself and say, well, who am I really? Am I Earth? I don't think most of you would think of yourself as just the bones of your body or the structures that hold your shape. Am I water or am I more than that? Am I air or am I more than Earth, water, and air? Am I fire? Or am I more than earth, water, fire, and air? So if you can imagine yourself without the earth, the water, the fire, and air that make up your physical body, where would you be? When we die, all of that decays. And one way to think about this is People lose parts of themselves every day. You can lose a leg. So you lost a chunk of earth, water, fire, and air. But you still know who you are. You can lose an arm. You can lose an arm and a leg. In fact, there are many people that have lost both arms and both legs. But their sense of who they are, their sense of self still remains. And there's probably people that have lost arms, legs, and organs, chunks of their inner self, but there's still a sense of self. So a deeper question is, if I look into myself and say, who am I without the earth, the water, the fire, and air, and where am I, it leads to quite an interesting mystery. I'm not going to try to answer that for you, but I would like to make the point that when we, as we begin this series on evolving yourself physically, when we're talking about the physical aspects of ourself, we are talking about earth, water, fire, and air existing in space. That is our home. It is the temple. It is the ultimate temple of worship, because without the body, you cannot worship anything else or anyone else, not the way we know it here on earth. But some of you are going to come to the realization that your mind still exists. Some of you will come to the realization that your mind your soul, and your spirit still exist. And those are the kinds of things we will get into as we move through this series. Some of you would come to the realization that you're everywhere and somehow nowhere. And this is the source from which we emerge. And we'll look carefully at this issue as we get into evolution of the mind in the third edition of this series. So the key thing to remember at this point is that your body 
is ultimately a collection of atoms. And atoms cannot be organized or animated by themselves. Uh, You know, uh, stones don't create themselves and stones don't change their own shape. So we must think that there's something more going on here than just the body. But we also realize that somehow we're very infused into our body. We're all aware of this. For example, if you hit your finger with a hammer and someone says, what happened? You say, I hurt my hand. Or we say to someone when they're emotionally challenged or hurt, what's wrong with you? And you might say, I don't feel well, or uh, my back hurts. So there's always a possessive. It's when we speak like this, hidden in our very language is the concept of possession. We are in possession of a body. And we live in that body, and we breathe that body, and we dance with that body, and we sing with that body, and we draw, and we talk, and we make love, and we climb mountains, and we do things that make us happy, and sometimes we do things that cause pain. But we always know that we're in possession of a body, so even those that don't see themselves yet in their own stage of evolution as more than their body know that somehow they're affecting that body with their mind and their emotions. And we will look into this, but the key thing that I'd like to point out right now is that matter is not a self-organizing system you take out a monopoly board and and all the pieces, you have to put the pieces on the board. Somebody had to make the board. Somebody had to create the context within which matter makes meaning for us. So when we ask ourselves, well, what is our body? Well, as an organism, we essentially recapitulate the history of life on Earth in the womb when we are beginning our journey into the body, we start from a single-celled organism. Once the sperm meets the egg and gestation begins, we are just like the single-celled organisms that lived in the oceans on this planet billions of years ago. And before we leave our mother's womb, our body will be composed of approximately 100 trillion cells and we will become a very, very complex being. We will have a brain with as many neural connections as there are stars in the known universe, in fact, more. Yet when we die a physical death, when our body dies, our body goes backward, decaying into the simple elements from which we physically emerged. The air will leave our body. The body will decay into the earth. The water will evaporate. The warmth, as you know, will be gone. Dead people are not warm. Now, interestingly, 
scientific research shows us that this process is guided by energy fields from the time of gestation onward a miraculous thing is happening one cell becomes two two becomes four four becomes eight eight sixteen thirty two sixty four and this goes on until we're about a hundred trillion cells of a very very complex organism so you see evolution is happening right before our eyes we go from one cell that's fairly simple in comparison to the hundred trillion cells that we become. But what we know from scientific research, and even prior to that, is that there are fields that act on our cells and guide our genes And these fields of information act on our genes, turning some of them off and some of them on to produce gene expression. Now, it's only recently that science has really identified these energy fields, and there's very, very comprehensive books and mountains of scientific research out there. But if you look at the Encyclopedia of Subtle Energy Anatomy by Cynthia Dale, it's one of the most comprehensive and complete readable books out there. And she shows you all these different fields that have guiding influences on our cells and affect everything from our thoughts to our emotions. But what's quite fascinating is in my library, I have a book written by a New Zealand healer who documents the fact that Tibetan monks had identified 900 years ago that at the moment of gestation, the monks who were clairvoyant and very, very evolved in their ability to see beyond the physical, recognized that the energy fields and the meridians now recognized by science formed and they guided the cells. They are the ones that guide stem cells so that some become bones, some become eyes, some become ears, some become your tongue, some your heart, some your liver, and each of these cells specializes. So it's really quite amazing that the Tibetan monks who had a practice of dissecting bodies when people died to study them we're able to see this, just like uh, the Chinese have had acupuncture for thousands of years, but Western doctors thought it was a bunch of bunk until Richard Nixon in the 70s was exposed to acupuncture, and that triggered off a lot of interest, and now we have tremendous amounts of scientific validation that acupuncture is very, very real. In fact, we have science showing us some very, very amazing things. I've got a book called Life Force by Claude Swanson, a physicist in my library. And in there, he has an amazing study, a lot of amazing studies, actually. And in this study, a scientist monitored the acupuncture meridians of the body with very sensitive monitoring equipment while simultaneously using satellite information monitoring the solar activity of the sun. And 
he showed something that's pretty mind-blowing. He showed that the energy fluctuations in the acupuncture meridians of our body immediately responded to the activity of the sun with a zero time lag. Why is that pretty wild? Well, based on science and the speed of light, it takes something like eight minutes for a photon to get here from the sun. Yet he showed that the acupuncture meridians, which interface with all the tissues of the body, were responding to the sun instantly. Now, I won't go beyond that because that gets into some of the discussions for later parts of our series, but that is something to really meditate on because right off the bat, if we go back to our initial experiment, if you get rid of the earth, the water, the fire, and air, where are you? What are you? Who are you? And then when you find out current science shows that our body and the meridian systems that interface with it are instantly responsive to the sun, that denies the laws of physics. That denies or goes against pretty much the whole Newtonian concept of physics. So it brings up quite an amazing mystery. Just realizing that means you've already evolved. Because one of the things that comes out of that is that you are the sun. And the elements that make your body came from the earth. Although they literally came from stars before they were in the earth. And when they look at the elements that make up the periodic table and that are here on earth, and then they try to track those elements back to stars, they find some of them in the sun. But then when they say, where did those elements come from that are in the sun? What they find out is that those elements came from everywhere in the universe. That when they do that research, it literally brings us to a realization that what we are as a body is a product of the entire universe. So it might help you. I know it helps me. It inspires me to know that we're not alone in this process and that our body is so amazing. Our body is literally responding to the sun instantaneously. The air that we breathe is not just a product of the earth itself. The air that we breathe couldn't evaporate from water into gas without the warmth of the sun. The water wouldn't move and the planet would die without the tidal effect of the moon in its orbit and how it affects the planet. The moon literally warps the whole planet as it moves around the planet and it moves the waters. So it's quite an amazing thing when we really start looking at the concept of evolution of the body and what the body really is, because a lot of us feel alone in our bodies. We listen to what doctors say, and often it doesn't work. 
or it works partially. We buy diet books and we try the diet hoping to lose weight and we often do for a couple of weeks or a couple of months or six months and all of a sudden it stops working. We try exercise programs and they work for a while but then we start gaining weight or we get hurt. So what we often end up experiencing is a feeling of frustration. Why isn't my body responding? So we've discussed that the body begins as a single-celled organism and grows to this very complex collection of 100 trillion cells. And I've shared that this is guided by energy fields from gestation onwards, and I shared that science has now identified that, but Tibetan monks identified this 900 years before science did. And I'm talking about the fact that these energy fields are not just products of our body. And I've cited research showing that we're intimately connected to the sun. And uh, with not much effort, I could find many more research studies showing that we're connected to the activities of the earth. And I have seen studies showing that there are changes in evoked potentials in the body, for example, when an earthquake is coming. So these fields that are directing us are basically not only going out to the sun, but the sun's responding to the galaxy, and the galaxy is responding to other galaxies. And so what we find is that everything's involved in this, even space. And when we keep digging, we find that we come face to face with a mystery, what's behind it all. So then when we ask what organizes energy and information, we come face-to-face with mind, which we will get into in the third episode of this series titled Evolving Yourself Mentally. But we know that our genes are involved. Uh, you know, we've, we've got quite an interesting situation going on with genes, just like we have with does the brain create consciousness or is it a receiver of consciousness and uh, something that interacts with consciousness. Uh, an analogy often used is a television set. It's It doesn't have the information inside of it. It's picking it up and it's displaying the images on a screen, much like our brain is based on current information and science is is that our brain is picking up information that's not inside of it or not just inside of it but it's then giving us images on a screen or thoughts feelings and emotions but it's also sending them out we have mountains of research by people like Dean Radin and Larry Dossey and many many others um, showing that uh, we're we're connected in ways that uh, can't be uh, established through causal connection and through standard physical models. So in the gene field, we have the materialistic approach to genes, which is that genes are controlling everything. Uh, And so the negative aspect of that is now there's genetic testing and people get told that they have this strength or this weakness, such as the you have the fat gene. So people think, oh my God, I'll, I'm always going to be fat. I'll, I, I have no chance. And so they get 
kind of defeated and I have the cancer gene. So that spins them down. And uh, when I did my testing through a couple of the different websites, 23andMe, and um, there's another one, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it even showed based on your genes, what your athletic abilities or, or strengths might be. And even what sports you might do well at. For example, mine said I would be good at explosive sports and sports like hockey, which is true. And so it's easy to fall into this materialistic mindset and get trapped there. But there's a lot more going on than that really uh, leads us to believe. And then in comes. Bruce Lipton, whose work I absolutely love and uh, who I sent a copy of How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy with and he, uh, to, and he really enjoyed it and sent me a copy, a pre-published copy of his second book to look at, which I was grateful for. But Bruce Lipton really pioneered understanding of epigenetics. Epi means above or beyond epi, above the genes. And what Bruce Lipton's work shows, for example, is they can actually take the nucleus right out of a cell or take the genes out and it can still function. It doesn't function quite as quickly. And he highlights that the casing of the cell is called a membrane and that the cell is capable of functioning even without its genes in it. And so, in a nutshell, Bruce Lipton did a mountain of research, now there is mountains more research backing up the idea that our genes are really more on-off switches, and we have a lot of genes, and we have a lot of genes in common with things that we wouldn't expect, like we have something like 23% of the same genes as a fruit fly, we have a lot of the same genes as bananas and daffodils and flowers and trees. We have a lot of genes that are now called junk DNA, but from my own investigations through meditative practices and using my clairvoyance to look inside of myself, I've concluded that the genes that they call junk genes are the genes that allow us to communicate with everything in our environment and to be connected to the whole be it the sun, the galaxy, or whatever you can conceive of, because uh, as I'll talk about more when we get to the section on mind, the research shows now what the mystics have been saying forever, is that there is only one mind, and we will look at that. But for now, to summarize Bruce Lipton's research, it's best to think of our genes like the keyboard on a piano. And think of the environment and how we relate to the environment, such as how we manage our thoughts, feelings, and emotions, as how we play the keyboard. So if we're in an environment where it's very hot and dry, or where there is not much animal food to eat, those keys will be played on the keyboard and the genes will turn certain functions off or down-regulate them and enhance other functions to increase survivability. So how we play the keyboard uh, determines whether we live a sedentary life, 
become unhealthy or more and more unconscious as our body stops working well. Um, And if we have weaknesses in the family, such as a history of alcoholism or a history of cancer, epigenetics says we can participate with our body and evolve our genes through diet and lifestyle factors and make ourselves less prone to the negative effects or weaknesses in our genes by improving our biological systems as well as learning to effectively manage our emotions and psychological traits or tendencies. And we can achieve higher levels of consciousness and do things that materialistic science just cannot account for, such as bending metal or spoons. Um, And there's people all over the world giving classes on that. In fact, some of my students, one of my students Uh, Tanya Carroll from Australia uh, took training and learned how to bend a horseshoe with her hands, which, you know, she, she's not like a superhero woman. She's a healthy, normal, athletic woman, but uh, next time you get your hands on a horseshoe, try and bend it. Uh, I'm a pretty strong guy. I don't think I could bend a horseshoe. I haven't tried, but I know what horseshoes feel like. I was raised on a farm. So we've got People that do firewalks, which I have done. I have done a firewalk with Tony Robbins, who used to be a client of mine, and he used to uh, give me guest passes to his seminars, and one of them was the firewalk. And there was a thermometer in the coals, and it was 2,600 degrees when we walked across those coals. There's no Newtonian physical explanation for how a person can walk 30 or 40 feet across Uh, burning embers of uh, hard wood at 2,600 degrees Fahrenheit. And I saw uh, that those that kept themselves in the right mental state could do it. And, And this is more the topic of our upcoming discussion, but the point that I'm making is genes cannot account for that. Because if we look at the materialistic viewpoint, well, I think we're all smart enough to know that sticking your hand inside of something 2600 degrees like hot coals means your tissue would melt and it and it for some it does who cannot maintain the the right mental state and i've seen documentaries where uh, tibetan monks were doing things like putting a shovel into a fire until it got so hot it literally glowed white when they picked the shovel up out of the fire under the pressure of gravity, the shovel just folded like a molten metal will as it gets hot enough to lose its shape because it's becoming more liquid. And that particular monk stuck his tongue on that shovel and steam shot off, and you could literally hear it, and it didn't do anything to him. I've seen documentaries where monks are putting their hands in boiling hot oil and picking things up out of the oil and doing this repeated times as part of an initiation process, but physics cannot account for that, and they do not get burned. So these are just examples of the fact that epigenetics uh, basically shows that through effective management of diet and lifestyle and mental-emotional factors, we can actually turn genes on, turn genes off, and make alterations in our body that actually we could call evolving ourselves. We become more complicated than Newtonian physics 
can really explain. And I think these are very, very interesting concepts. And many of the people, when they hear people like me talk about this stuff, immediately just close their ears and shut down, but they don't actually look at the mountains of scientific research that's out there, unfortunately. Um, So this is why David Bohm says um, real thinking is hard work. That's why most people just rearrange their prejudices. So there's a lot going on, and really what I'm alluding to here is that we have many ways that we can evolve our body. So we have plenty of research and theory that suggests that as we learn and adapt favorably and we evolve, we can reduce the likelihood that our offspring, be it our own family directly or our brother's family or our sister's family or any derivation of our family, anybody coming forward, the new offspring, will be less likely to have a hard time struggling with challenges such as alcoholism, cancer, or what have you. So, in order to understand this, we need to look at Rupert Sheldrake's morphogenic field concept and This is only one aspect of his work because it goes much beyond just morphogenic fields into morphic resonance. But if you want to look into this, an excellent book is The Presence of the Past, The Memory of Nature. The Presence of the Past, The Memory of Nature by Rupert Sheldrake. And basically what morphogenic fields are as proposed by his model and research, is that there are fields for each species, every species in nature, from insects to ants to single-celled organisms to dolphins and whales, giraffes, every single thing out there, and that these morphogenic fields record the experiences within each organism of a species and even the individual experiences of each member of a species, so each chimpanzee, each human being, and that those species are basically in a constant upload-download relationship, and that the changes that we make inform future offspring and can ultimately modify genes or gene expression, and it has also been demonstrated scientifically to influence learning and behavior in successive generations. So what we see is that our individual evolution of our body facilitates the evolution of our offspring. Now, I was watching a documentary that was looking into Rupert Sheldrake's concepts, and they were doing tests in this particular a group of scientists was testing magpies. Magpies are very interesting birds because they have a very large brain cavity relative to body size and are highly intelligent. They have something like 400 words. And researchers have shown that magpies can make tools even more complex than chimpanzees. And they actually showed film footage of magpies making very elaborate tools with many bends and even ties in them for fishing insects out of different plants and things like that. But what they showed is is basically what they did is they 
raised a group of magpies, and then they had one of the researchers dressed up in this kind of scary costume and come out and make lots of noise and scare the hell out of the magpies. And they did this for a full generation. And then when they laid the eggs, when the magpies' uh, eggs hatched, they took those chicks and raised them. And those magpies, they did not expose to the same stimulus. But what they showed is that when these magpies, the new ones, the, the babies that had not seen the scary man in the costume with all of his clanging and banging, when those offspring were exposed, that they had developed the behavioral response traits that the other ones took quite some time to develop. And so they were able to show that there was a transfer of information through the genes to the offspring that did not require a physical exposure. In other words, they didn't have to see this and learn it themselves. And there's much more on that in Sheldrake's work. I I won't go through it all because there's a mountain of research that he's done, and it's all just absolutely fascinating stuff. But what I'm showing here is that whenever we evolve ourselves physically and we learn how to manage our epigenetics, we suppress our genetic weaknesses and we enhance our survivability. We enhance the quality of our lives. We make it better for ourselves because we're learning about ourselves and our learning about ourselves and how to meet the unique needs of our specific body and our genetics allows us to create more freedom for ourselves. And ultimately, you could say that one of the side effects of real evolution is that you have not only more survivability, but you have more freedom because you're learning. And the more you learn, such as learning to make tools, well, you might be able to eat when other animals that haven't learned these techniques are starving to death. So as I often tell my patients, clients, and students that are having a hard time following their new program, uh, be it diet program, lifestyle program, exercise program, etc., or spiritual practices, if you can't, I tell them if you can't do it for yourself, if you're not motivated enough to do it for yourself, then consider doing it for the rest of your family or even humanity or the whole world since human beings are at a point now where they're about to destroy the entire planet and everything in it, which we will save for another day, but I've talked about this quite a bit. So we can evolve our bodies and we can evolve our genetic expression and we can learn faster and we can overcome pre, uh, you know, a priori tendencies, things that came before us such as the tendency for obesity, the tendency for cancer, the tendency for addictions of various types. So what I'd like to do now as we move forward is is go into what I call evolution by the numbers. And, and you know, I've been doing this work for 35 years in holistic health and uh, orthopedic rehabilitation, strengthening and conditioning and all aspects related to it from mental emotional management to spiritual development because those were all things that were part of my 
childhood upbringing and my life as an athlete. And uh, when I was young, I didn't realize when I was, you know, I, I began my career when I was 22. But prior to that, I didn't, I just thought I was doing everything I was doing to win. <laughs> that was my interest, winning. I did not like to lose. So having a mother that's a, a yogi, a meditator, and, and uh, being initiated into these concepts by monks and spending time with monks uh, when I was 15 and, and even, you know, when I was 12 all the way up till I was 15, we, we were going to the temple on uh, the weekends and practicing these things. So through my life and through the development of the Czech Institute, I tried to simplify things so that people in the public could take advantage of some of the more advanced teachings. It takes my students to complete their programs, to to do the training and to apply it effectively so that they're ready for the next program. It's a it's not a, a like a university where you just sit and go and spend every day studying books and things for X number of years till you have a, a degree. I teach people and my instructors teach people in blocks of training, uh, a lot of which is highly practical so that they can then go out and practice the material so that when they come back for their next level of training, they now have an innate level of mastery and we're not just stacking more and more theory on top of theory, which just leads to a talking head. So, in my own process, I got to the point where I realized that these, the level of complexity in my education system was so high that even my most advanced students had a hard time deciding what to do first because by the time someone's a level three Czech practitioner, um, you know, they can literally evaluate somebody for five or six hours straight and have mountains of information. And so, I begin getting requests from my more advanced students and instructors as to try to explain the model I use for simplifying things, but it was so innate that I had to go into meditation for a few months and have deep conversations with my soul, and I was led to a beautiful model of simplification. It's a 10-step model that we teach in our Holistic Lifestyle Coach program and in the more advanced Czech practitioner programs, but I'd like to just discuss the first six steps here. And I will again refer back to these concepts and steps as we look at emotions, as we look at mind, as we look at what spirituality is and spiritual development is, and then how it relates to finding our career or our vocation or what I call our dream. But the first step that we will apply to evolution of the body is number one. So it's six steps that we're going to go over. One stands for one love, which means what do you love enough to change for? I often quote psychologist Jerry Wesh, who says, when you have a big enough dream, you don't need a crisis. And I think that's absolutely true. So whenever it comes to evolving ourselves, we need something that we see as more juicy, more exciting, more viable than our habits that are not producing the results. Remember, you don't get fat overnight. You watch yourself growing day by day. And you, if you're paying attention, see yourself repeating the same diet and lifestyle behaviors, yet 
it's kind of sad that people expect a different result, yet they keep doing the same things. If you keep eating the same food and living the same lifestyle, yet you keep telling yourself you want to lose weight, well, <laughs> how do you handle that? I mean, obviously something's wrong and something needs to change, but conditioned behavior or sometimes what we call Pavlovian behavior based on Pavlov's dog, for those of you that understand Pavlovian reflexes and basic physiology, um, we have to go beyond that conditioned behavior. So we need something to inspire us, to pull us up out of our uh, conditioned behavior and sometimes poor me behavior. So the first step for evolving your body is getting clear on what you love more than what you have right now. If you love to climb mountains, but you're too out of shape or you're too overweight, then that love of climbing mountains becomes your inspiration. It becomes your motivation. It becomes your reason to change your behavior. And this, again, falls right squarely into the category of mind. So we will be revisiting, but because I want to build on each of these uh, successive episodes of the podcast in our evolution series, I want to be able to tie it to each level. So what do you love enough to change your body for? That can be a dream, like my dream is to be healthy and vital and be able to enjoy my grandchildren. Or you can end up being like me. I'm 57 and I've got a three-year-old and a brand new one on the way. So, you know, I'll be uh, just about 58 when my third child is born. And I'm excited, but fortunately for me, I'm still in very good physical condition. I can still outrun and outlift most people that are less than half my age. And many of the elite and professional athletes I work with get quite a shock when I can um, push them beyond their physical abilities in the gym. So I'm showing you that I too have evolved through these practices. Now, if you don't have a one love dream, you could also use a goal or an objective. What is my goal? Uh, if it's losing weight or getting in better shape or looking better or being stronger or fitter or more agile or more flexible, then that's a legitimate motive. That's a legitimate means of inspiring yourself. If you cannot find a dream goal or objective, then I teach my patients and my students to look for what your nightmare is. The nightmare is a signifier for the one thing in your life that's causing a significant amount of stress, that if you addressed it effectively, would have the greatest stress reduction effect on your body, your emotions, your mind, and your life. So if you don't have a dream, goal, or objective, I would encourage you to say, what is my nightmare? I'm pre-diabetic, or I'm diabetic, or I'm predisposed to cancer based on my genetic uh, research or the testing that I've done, um, or I'm uh, too broke to buy good food and therefore, I need to get fitter and get my head clear so that I'm 
capable of having more options to make money. It could be a number of things. Once we have that dream goal objective or nightmare established, then we look at the two forces. So there's number two, the two forces that create everything in the universe. Quantum physicist and physicist David Bohm basically referred to these forces as the implicate or that force which enfolds. So inside of an acorn, there is an oak tree that's enfolded to the point that no matter how powerful the microscope you use is, you cannot find an oak tree in there. It's enfolded to the point of being energy and information. So the causal force of the seed is there in its implicate form, but if you uh, germinate that seed, it begins to grow, it sprouts and grows into a sapling, which ultimately becomes a full-grown oak tree, and that would be the explicate expression. If we look at it from Chinese medicine or Taoist perspectives, which I quite love because there's a tremendous amount of simplicity and practicality, far, far more practicality than most Western approaches, the implicate force of David Bohm is what they call yin or the feminine. The explicate force is yang or the masculine. A simple way to understand these forces, which are quite mysterious to a lot of Westerners, um, and unfortunately many Westerners, (laughs) sadly the ones that we would consider to be educated, just poo-poo these concepts because they come from people from another country or different colors of skin or because they have uh, religious biases or whatever. But if we look at the yin force, the feminine force, the key thing to remember about the force of yin is that yin multiplies power. So when a woman gets pregnant, she multiplies not only the power in her body through the use of resources, but she also multiplies the number of cells in her body to the point that it grows an entire new human being. And that's an anabolic force. The anabolic force is the building force. It's the growth and repair force in our bodies. And yin really is the anabolic force, if you will. And then yang, the explicate, the masculine, divides power. So if you look at the sun, it's dividing its power in every direction, which produces the light and heat that allows everything on earth to be as it is. So when we are hungry, we have an emptiness. So we could say that the emptiness in us is a stronger yin force. The woman has more emptiness in her than a man. She has a uterus, and it's an empty organ until until, uh, gestation happens. And so there is that desire to be fulfilled, to become pregnant. And she multiplies power. The sperm is the expression of the male force, and then when you get the male and female genes together, then it triggers off gestation. But if we look, for example, at expressions of yang, if we go to the gym and work out, we've spent some of our power, and then we 
have to walk to the bus stop or to the car. And then we got to use our energy to drive the car and be aware of what we're doing. And then we might go to work and then we do tasks at work. And this process goes on throughout the day. So you can see by the end of the day, we're tired. We have divided our available power to the point that metaphorically speaking, our battery is low and we must go back into a rest or sleep mode, which we go back to yin. So you see that as the sun comes up, we awaken. It triggers hormonal reactions in our body that awaken us and prepare us for activity. And so we begin our yang cycle or the process of dividing the power that we have in our body or the energy that we have and resources that we have throughout the day doing the different things that we're doing. So in the check system, number two says, what are the two forces that create life, yin and yang, implicate, explicate, female, male, and where are we with regard to a healthy balance of those forces? Because if we're too yin, we become stagnant, sedentary, waterlogged. Um, You could say obesity is an excessive yin force or an excessive expression of yin, but somebody that's overtraining or starving themselves to the point that their body's breaking down would be excessively catabolic. Catabolic means tissue destructive. So when we're looking at evolution of the body, the first thing a Czech professional does is look at indicators for balance or imbalance in key biological systems, key body systems, and in your diet and lifestyle factors to make decisions about what choices need to be made in order to evolve you from the point that you're at to the point of being dream, goal, objective, um, affirmative, or to transforming your nightmare into freedom. Number three stands for choices. There's only three choices we can make in relationship to any person, place, or thing. The optimal choice, which is the one that's not only best for us, but everybody on our dream team or the people that are supporting us in making these changes. The suboptimal choice is the one that usually gives us instant gratification, but causes some kind of problem for achieving our longer term goals or problems on our dream team. And then there is the third choice, which is to do nothing. There's different applications of do nothing. Doing nothing is effective, for example, if we find ourselves in an argument and we're getting more and more disconnected, then we can do the equivalent of calling a timeout in sports and go regroup and come back when we are capable of uh, being productive and, and bringing ourselves into harmony We can also do nothing when we need to make a decision, but we don't have the information to make an intelligent decision. So the do nothing option then is just hitting the pause button. I really like this car, but before I spend $37,000, I've got to make sure that this car offers me more value per dollar than its competitors on the market. So I'm going to go research Uh, the other cars, and then you get the information you need to make that decision, and you can make an effective choice. 
the negative application of doing nothing is apathy. And to be apathetic means to not care. And to not care is more devastating than uh, being violent to people or abusing children, for example. Research shows that apathetic parents produce children with higher rates of disease and criminality than those that are uh, abusive, because at least if we're abusing somebody, we're making contact, we're giving them our attention. But those that are apathetic simply act like the child or the other doesn't even exist, and that's extremely painful. So it's the most devastating choice we can make is to not care. So in evolution of our body, once we identify what our dream goal or objective is or the nightmare we want to heal and transform and where we're out of balance, then we know we have choices to make. And that brings us to number four. Number four in this case has two key applications I'll discuss. We will get into others as we go through the series, but four is a very, very powerful number. Um, Carl Jung spoke of number four as the number of completion. And so, without going into a lecture on the fours, because there's a lot of them, we must remember that our body is made of four elements, earth, water, fire, and air, which we are embodied within space. We, you could call space the fifth element. But when it comes to the four doctors, we have Dr. Happiness, and Dr. Happiness is a signifier for the mind, for using our mind to create things or to do things that are happy-making for us in our life. And that will be something we'll get much deeper into in episode three. And Dr. Happy also has a lot to do with emotions, which will be the concept in episode two. But for now, it's Dr. Happy that chooses the dream, goal, or objective. It's Dr. Happy that looks in the mirror and and either is satisfied or unsatisfied with what they see or looks inside and is either satisfied or unhappy with what they are experiencing inside of themselves, i.e. you or I. So with it, we have, then we have Dr. Movement, and Dr. Movement is the chief of movement, the chief of moving our bodies to keep them healthy. And we all know that we need exercise. And what I'm going to do in a minute, I'll, I'll expand on each of these a little more so it's not just so um, very scaled down, but you get more out of it. But in a nutshell, Dr. Movement has everything to do with our choices with regarding movement and how movement is either supporting our dream goal or objective or helping us remove our nightmare or not. Then we have Dr. Diet. Dr. Diet is the chief of identifying what it is that is optimal for us to eat. Uh, what is it that is the right amount of water? Uh, how much alcohol or recreational substances should we drink or eat before we disrupt our ability to achieve our dream goals and objectives effectively. Dr. Quiet looks at the applications of rest and sleep. So 
when you look at evolution of the body, you will find that it's impossible to optimally evolve or efficiently evolve if you remove any one of those four doctors. In my ebook, The Last Four Doctors You'll Ever Need How to Get Healthy Now, and in my advanced training programs, I teach my students um, a lot about these doctors, but one of the things I do is I describe the doctors in a model of a wheel, like a wagon wheel with four spokes. And I say, if you knock one of these spokes out, that part of the wheel will collapse and it's no longer round. So it becomes more like something along the lines of a half oval. Um, and that makes something that's very hard to roll. If you knock two spokes out, it collapses even more and it becomes almost impossible to roll. We don't even need to go past two because if you knock two spokes out or you become ignorant of any two of these four doctors, you are going to be very profitable to the medical system. You will express all your genetic weaknesses or many of them and your life will be very miserable. And unfortunately, people do this all the time and run around to doctors and therapists hoping to get a magic pill or sell their problems to some doctor or therapist. And as we can see, we've got more doctors and more therapists and more nutritionists and dietitians and more strength coaches and more personal trainers per capita, including massage therapists, acupuncturists, and allied healthcare professionals than ever in the history of man. And we are the sickest, most disease-laden, depressed, anxious people with the highest rates of suicide in ever, every category that we've ever seen in recorded history. So clearly, if we want to evolve our body, we have got to pay attention to these four key categories of relationship. And that's what they are. They're categories, essential categories of relationships. Dr. Happy is our relationship with and use of our mind. Dr. Movement and Dr. Diet and Dr. Quiet are specifically how do we manage our body and the beliefs and the behaviors that we use to guide our management strategies are the product of Dr. Mind. And each of these categories, as I will describe in more detail moving forward, are values categories. What are your values around movement? What are your values around food? What are your values around rest? As a parent, I can tell you, if you don't have values to guide your decision-making and you let children stay up too late at night, for example, and they don't get enough sleep, well, the first thing that happens is they start getting absolutely hard to manage and very emotional and cranky. The next thing that happens is their grades start dropping down if they haven't already begun getting in a lot of trouble at school. So what we see right off the bat is that these four categories of relationship also become essential categories of values and our values are what we use to make decisions and as I often tell my clients and students your yes has no value until you learn to say no and you don't know when to say no until you have values to guide your decision making process which means you cannot evolve your body because to evolve your body requires 
a constant stream of decision-making. It's, yes, this fits my dream goal or objective, or no, this goes against the values that support my dream goal or objective. As you can see, just going out willy-nilly today with a human body and just winging it isn't working. And also, taking your body to doctors and therapists isn't working either because they can only instruct you or do work to make you more comfortable with the damage that we've created or you've created with the choices you've made, but they can't follow you home and and stick a fork in your mouth or tell you when to go to bed. That's just not realistic or practical, and it also puts you right square in the category of being a child, which means we have issues to, to look into in the category of mind, Dr. Happiness. Now, we're going to get into these doctors a little bit more in a bit, so I have a lot more to share with you. But right now, I want to say number five are the five program design factors. And all my years of writing therapeutic programs and athletic training programs for everybody from uh, grandmothers that wanted to play with their grandchildren to mountaineers, to fighter jet pilots, to race car drivers, to uh, the best athletes in the world. And uh, I have worked with many of the best athletes in the world for sure, and many of the greatest sports teams and Olympic committees and many other things. So these are not uh, theoretical concepts to me. And what I found is when designing exercise programs which includes involving your body because we have to design not only exercise programs, but we got to look at diet and lifestyle factor programs. We have to make changes if we want to evolve. So the five factors that we must consider are time. How much time do we honestly have to commit to evolving our body or keeping it healthy? And if we already are physically well-evolved, that means we still have to maintain it, but we have plenty of room to evolve ourselves emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, and professionally in our career. So how much time can we legitimately commit? The program that we create for ourselves must fit that, or it creates more distress, more catabolic breakdown in the body, more um, frustration and challenge. Second, how much energy do we have? If I write a program for someone that requires that they make changes in their diet and lifestyle that they don't have the energy to do, well, it's not effective. So how much time do we have? How much energy do we have? And what can I do now with the time and energy I have? Next, and probably the most important, is the willingness factor. How willing am I? How committed, how inspired, how devoted am I to evolving myself? Now, my mother and her husband, Alex Sensor, are both uh, trainers for the Nonviolent Communication Organization by Marshall Rosenberg. And Alex told me one day he developed a concept called the willingness meter, and I've used that ever since. That was many years ago. And he told me the story. He he my mother would ask him, 
Alex, would you please do the dishes? And he would say, well, right now my willingness isn't very high. So she would say, well, when might you be willing? And he would say, well, my willingness meter is pretty low right now. It's about a three or a four. But if you give me a couple hours, it might rise to a seven if you can wait that long. And so, of course, most of us would wait if we don't like doing the dishes. I don't like doing the dishes. I was raised in a family with seven people, and my father's concept of a dishwasher was a child. So I try to do other things instead. Occasionally I break down, I do the dishes. But the key factor here is based on Alex's observation and using this with this nonviolent communication practice and then sharing it with me and my observation, if our willingness factor isn't at least a 7 out of 10 as it relates to our dream goal or objective, we are probably not going to follow through with our own plan. So when we're looking at designing a program for evolving our body or healing our body, which would be a form of evolution, or growing our body stronger or more fit or more capable or more flexible, if our willingness factor isn't at least a 7 out of 10, chances are our dream is not well qualified and we're not likely to follow through on it. And that means we might waste a lot of money. And boy, do people waste a lot of money on bags of pills and this gimmick or that gimmick. And uh, research shows that something like 98% of all exercise equipment bought on infomercials is in the closet and is not used again after two, the first two weeks. So there you see that that purchase was not really well qualified because we didn't really truly have the willingness to stick to it. It was more of a fantasy. So, so far we've got time, energy, and willingness. Next is finances. We can get quite elaborate plans and get quite elaborate ideas, but they may be much more expensive than we realized. And if we're not careful, we can have good intentions, but end up creating so much financial stress for us that it actually becomes more catabolic or destructive inside of our physical, emotional, and mental uh, sense of self than it is productive. So we have to look at time. We have to look at how much energy we have. We have to look at our willingness. And we have to look at, is it feasible financially when I look at my overall level of stress and my ability to uh, pay for this plan? Or should I downsize and become a little bit more efficient? And if that's hard, then we often need to find an expert like a check trained professional that knows uh, how to make things more efficient and and uh, break your dream down into smaller chunks, which I call chunking a dream. Finally is resource availability. If we have the time, the energy, the willingness, and the finances, but we don't have the resources, we're still stuck. Now, an example of resource availability uh, someone could design you a very good exercise program, but if they didn't realize that you aren't a member of a gym and the closest gym to you is 30 or 40 minutes drive and you only have an hour a day to do your exercise program, then you're going to spend the majority, if not all of that whole hour driving back and forth. So by the time you spend an hour in the gym, 
you're going to really be having a hard time meeting your obligations and doing the other things you've got to do. So for any of us that wants to evolve physically, it's going to require that we make changes and those changes are going to need to be implemented quite consistently or we won't see the change. And that is what we call a program. And we have to be conscious of the time, energy, our level of willingness, finances and resource availability or the best intentions will fail. Now, finally, we get to number six, and that is the six foundation principles I teach in Czech Holistic Lifestyle Coaching Level 1, 2, and 3. My Level 1 program is designed for the public and anybody wanting to learn to do holistic lifestyle coaching professionally And the program is designed to teach you how to apply the principles in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, and more. But it's based on six foundation principles. Three of them are yin, nutrition, hydration, and sleep, because those are the things that bring energy and resources in. We eat to gain nutrition. We drink to hydrate and we sleep to rebuild, repair, and regenerate. And three of them are yang, breathing, because breathing stimulates metabolic processes, and depending on how we breathe can make us highly sympathetic, which is the fight-or-flight division. It's the yang division of our nervous system. The parasympathetic system is the yin or anabolic branch of our nervous system. So we have breathing, Now, breathing can also become yin, but we're working with general classifications here. We have thinking, and I classify thinking as yang for many reasons, but whenever we think, and I will get into this more later, we need to use resources to experience the thought. So if you think, I'm going to lose my job in two weeks and I'm scared to death, that will trigger the release of key hormones that have to come from resources and those hormones have effects on the body. And I remember listening to a um, interview with Deepak Chopra where he cited research that uh, showed that the average person thinks 68,000 thoughts a day, 90% of which were found to be negative in orientation. So I classify thinking as yang because one, it costs resources to think. Many of you have had the experience of being in school and taking a test, and though you didn't do any exercise that day, you walked out of the examination room exhausted because your mind uses a lot of blood sugar and resources. In fact, research shows that whenever we're cognitively engaged thinking about something, such as taking a test or finishing or completing a task, the brain uses 80% of the available blood sugar in the bloodstream at any given time. So the brain turns out to be the most inefficient organ in our body. It is a huge energy consumer. And as a consumer or a utilizer that does not increase our power, the more we use our brain, the more we burn down our metaphorical battery. Therefore, it's yang. It divides power. So we have breathing, thinking and movement. Most people's movement is yang, but it can be yin, and I'll talk about that as we move forward. 
So the six foundation principles turn out to break down into three yin and three yang. So nutrition and hydration is the domain of Dr. Diet. Sleep is the domain of Dr. Quiet. Breathing falls into both Dr. Quiet as a spiritual practice and Dr. Movement because breathing and movement are synonymous. You can't breathe without your body moving. Uh, Thinking is Dr. Happiness. So we have breathing, thinking, and movement, Dr. Movement. So you see those uh, six foundation principles are encapsulated in the previous four doctors. So now let's look at and explore each of these key principles and how applying them effectively results in evolution of our body. So moving on now, let's look at these six foundation principles. First, we will go through the three yin principles, nutrition, hydration, and sleep. Then we will go to the yang principles, breathing, thinking, and movement. So nutrition, one of the most important things that people have yet to realize, including science at most every level, is that food is not just energy. People shop for food the way they shop for gasoline. They think they're going to save money on food. And it boggles my mind when I drive past these discount food marts and they are just packed. And you walk into them and almost everybody in there is obese and has skin problems and swollen eyes and bags under their eyes and dark uh, dark lines under their eyes. Uh, just as a tip for you, swollen swelling under the eyes is a sign that the kidney system is overloaded and darkness under the eyes like an allergic shiner, what looks like someone got punched in the eye and it's blue, is a sign that the liver is very backed up and under stress. So food is not just energy, it's energy plus information. And information is what we use to direct body systems. The information in lima beans is very different than the information in bananas. The information in lamb chops is very different than the information in pineapple. And we will talk more about that in a second, but the key thing that we want to pay attention to when we're choosing foods is not just does it have energy or is it cheap, but does it carry the right information, which leads us to food quality. Food quality determines the quality of the information and how much is of, uh, energy is available to us. If we eat white processed table sugar, there is a lot of energy in there, but the information that was in the plant, call it beets, is extracted So it becomes a drug, uh, something that affects the cell but does not help effectively regulate cell functions. When we eat the right nutrition, we get the energy and the information that improves the regulation and integration of body systems. And that uh, issue boils right down to farming. And today... 94%, 94 to 96% of all the food eaten in the world comes from commercial farms which use heavy amounts of pesticides, herbicides, rodenticides, 
fungicides and other very dangerous chemicals that are very poisonous to the body. And you also have other applications in the soil, such as chemical fertilizers that are brought into the plant that are not only potentially damaging to the plant, but they're disruptive to the plant's own energy metabolism and ability to extract uh, healthy nutrition. And they also have a tendency to destroy the microorganisms in the soil that are ultimately the parents of the plants. They're the ones that provide the food and the energy and information for the plant. So if we wipe out the microorganism population that supports the plant, we basically have a plant that's like a child with no parents as a metaphor. So the first and most important aspect of food as energy and information boils right down to food quality. And the top quality foods are those that are organically grown or biodynamically grown. Uh, biodynamic food is an organic farming system that's even more evolved than standard organic farming. It was designed by Rudolf Steiner, who I could do an entire show on Rudolf Steiner. He was a genius. He was a metaphysician. He was a scientist. Uh, he was a phenomenal teacher. Uh, he was just an outstanding genius of very, very high abilities in many areas, a Renaissance man, a polymath. Next, when it comes to nutrition, we have to consider our individual needs, our genetic needs. If your parents were Eskimos, you would have very unique needs. Eskimos live on, uh, you know, Weston A. Price showed that their diet is about 90% fat and protein from flesh foods and only about 10% plant food, and that they got most of their plant foods out of the stomachs of the fish or the animals that they killed, quite simply because plants don't grow in ice. But if your parents were Hawaiian, they would have a lot more sunshine and a lot more fruits and vegetables. And so the genes of that individual adapt to that environment and therefore have needs for the foods, the energies, and information that are supportive of thriving in that environment. Now, in my uh, Holistic Lifestyle Coach training, I go through this in, in much, much greater detail and give you all sorts of you know research and resources to look into. But this is just good, solid, common sense. And we can see very clearly that when native populations, such as Native American Indians, are taken out of their natural environment and fed what is often referred to as white man's food or processed food, they become obese. They have high incidences of diabetes and cancer and many other diseases. And you can see this with natives all over the world. You also see that they don't do well with alcohol. Uh, once they started getting their hands on alcohol, which is a processed substance, highly processed and refined, uh, they and everybody else that drinks too much alcohol start having all sorts of health problems because it is not in line with their individual genetic needs. So your body is always informing. In other words, you have to take the food the resources from outside of you, from the field or from the forest or the farm, and then out of those 
proteins, carbohydrates, enzymes, phenolics, terpenes, alkaloids, vitamins, minerals, trace minerals. We are able to inform our systems. Our cells are able to generate the right proteins and put fat where it's needed and put healthy fat where it's needed and store not only energy but nutrition that allow our bodies to thrive or evolve. Now, if you look at the fact that evolution is apparent in not only the earth but in the universe itself, if we just feed ourselves correctly and live the kinds of principles I'm talking about here, we don't really have to work that hard to evolve our bodies. Our bodies will evolve with the environment. Like I said earlier, we are phase-locked to the sun. So if the sun is evolving, we're evolving, as an example. So as a key concept... It's wise to remember that symptoms such as fatigue, headache, uh, gaining weight or, having, or, or not having enough body fat on you or muscle mass on you or joint aches and pains or digestive and eliminative troubles or visual problems or diseases, those are all symptoms that are informers. They are informing us that our choices are not congruent with the needs of our body. And if we keep doing that to ourselves, we don't evolve, we devolve. But sadly, we have a medical system that makes billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars, even trillions of dollars, by drugging and cutting out the messenger. So we have headaches, and most people think that's an aspirin deficiency. We have metabolic problems and people think, oh, that's a gene problem. So what we do is we run to doctors and drugstores and surgeons to ultimately kill or cut out the messenger. That's not wise. That's the equivalent of uh, getting an important phone call and just throwing your phone in the fire, uh, not realizing how important that call could be. So we need to be observant. We need to pay attention to the experiences that we're having. And a tip that I will give you that's highly practical is one that I teach my students and my patients and clients. It's diet logging. If you write down the symptoms that you're having on a, uh, a day timer or on a calendar system in your phone, and you simultaneously record everything you're eating and drinking and the time that you ate and drank it, and the type of symptom you're having and exactly when you had it, within about a week, you will start to notice a pattern. For example, every time I eat uh, Kellogg's cornflakes, I get swelling in my guts and I get bloaty and gassy. So after you see that day in and day out, if you look at what you're eating, you might say, well, I had toast, cornflakes, milk, and an apple. Well, to the degree you have a lot of symptoms, another tip is simplify your diet so that you can track what is bothering you more easily and cut it down to the minimum number of foods. So just have your cornflakes and your milk and maybe some raisins, for example. 
That way, if something goes wrong, you can say, well, it's got to be either the cornflakes, the milk, or the raisins. Well, I can tell you, any of the grains that have gluten in them are probably going to be the first things that you've got to get rid of, and that's all grains except corn, rice, buckwheat, and millet. So what happens is as you start minimizing the number of foods you eat, you don't have to starve yourself, but you simplify your diet. And then if you say, okay, that cornflakes, milk, and raisins gave me symptoms, next time I'm going to have to try uh, something that does not have gluten in it because that's the most likely culprit. Generally, the culprits are the foods you eat the most of. There's your next tip. The foods that are likely to be giving you the biggest problems are the foods you eat the most often. And I could go into a long, long discussion on this, but that's what I do in my professional training. To keep the podcast from being too long, I will just simply say what you would then do is remove the the cornflakes, although cornflakes uh, is does not necessarily have gluten in, but a lot of people that have gluten intolerance become intolerant of all grains. So a better solution than putting another grain in there would simply be to uh, replace your cornflakes for eggs, as an example. And if you want to have eggs, milk, and raisins as a snack, you could do that, and you're probably going to notice, oh my, my symptoms are a lot less, or now I don't have the bloating, I've just got the gas. So then the next time you come around, you then say, okay, getting rid of the cornflakes helped, now I'm going to take out the milk. The milk is another very common problem, and any pasteurized product, by definition, is dead. To pasteurize something, you must kill all the enzymes, and enzymes are what help us digest food, and if we don't get the food, the enzymes from the food we're eating, we have to extract enzymes out of our bodily systems, which leads us to a common problem, enzyme depletion. Usually by the time people uh, today are about 32 years of age, their enzyme systems are burned out, so they end up having tremendous digestive trouble because they're eating dead food. Pasteurized foods are by definition dead. There's another tip. Don't use pasteurized juices and pasteurized liquids of any type or pasteurized foods because they will burn your body out. And when you cook foods at the temperatures that you pasteurize them, you can uh, denature them and the enzymes are sensitive to temperatures. Some books say 108, some say 118 degrees. So if we eat too much cooked food and not enough raw food, we deplete our enzyme systems. So, quite simply, what I'm telling you here is that you track what you're eating, simultaneously track the symptoms, look for a pattern, keep your diet simple, and then what you want to do is start replacing things that you suspect might be a problem, starting with the foods that you eat the most. If you want to go deeper and even more effective than you would want to use the four-day rotation diet in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, and it's all explained right in the book. So we want to pay close attention and remember our symptoms are messengers. They are informing us that things are either working or not working. If we eat a food and it gives us better mental clarity, or we 
have better mood and our emotions are more stable or our body aches less or we have less swelling, then that message is a positive message. And so we want to pay close attention to when we are getting uh, dream or body evolution affirmative messages and when we're getting devolution or nightmare type messages. Next is hydration. Water is the largest component of our bodies, and we range from about 70% water at birth to around 56% water at death by old age. So there's an old saying, we start out as plums and we end up as prunes. Water is the chief solvent in nature and our bodies. Dr. Robert Rakowski says the best solution for pollution is dilution, and water is nature's chief solvent. So water is very critical. Most people are dehydrated. Uh, Some books say uh, approximately 90 to 95% of all people on the planet are dehydrated from not drinking enough water. Another tip is that water cannot be replaced by tea, coffee, soda, milk, or juice, or any other such liquid. Why? Because remember this rule, if you cannot see through it, or it is not clear, or it has solute in it, when you make a cup of tea, it changes color because there is solute, there is fine particles dissolved into it, and anything but water has to go through the digestive process, which uses a tremendous amount of resources. Um, John Berardi, a famous nutritionist, shows in his work it takes about 55% of the calories we eat or 55% of the calories and nutrition we bring in just to run a food from mouth to anus. So it costs a lot of energy and resources just to keep us alive, just to keep our hearts beating or metaphor to keep the lights on. Our connective tissues are about 95% water. So if we're not getting enough water, we start having problems with our musculoskeletal system, joints not moving correctly, things hanging up, getting stuck, feeling like you got pressure in your spine and you see people doing what is referred to as chiropractic masturbation, which is popping their joints all the time. And that can be due to a lack of quality water. Water has... Research shows that water has almost an infinite capacity to carry information. So we have to ask ourselves, what information are we drinking when we consider that research shows that there's almost no water supplies on the planet that now does not have toxic chemicals in it, largely from industry. So we need clean water, which means we want to use water filtration. Now, water filtration systems can get quite expensive, and your next tip is you can't just buy any filter and expect to get good results because each filter is specifically designed to remove specific elements or toxins. So if you're thinking about a filtration system for your home or your workplace, it's essential to get your water tested by a a well-established independent company that does a very comprehensive test Then you take that test to a company that sells filtration systems and you show it to them and then they can point you to which filtration systems will filter out the things that need to be removed from your specific water supply or you can end up spending a lot of money on a filtration system and still have all sorts of problems 
though you think you're drinking clean water, but it may not filter out the toxins that you need to get out of there. We also have to remember that water and nature's rhythms or information are put into water. Sunlight goes into water and it is recorded in the memory. Moonlight does. The rhythms of nature, the electromagnetic energy in the environment when we have storms or weather changes, these things tell our body about the environment. So water also carries homeopathic information about what bacteria, fungi, and parasites are in the environment so we need to be conscious that we don't over-filter water. I've seen water commercials. I can't remember if it's Desani or which one of them, but they say seven times filtered. Well, that may not be ideal because you might actually be filtering out key information that the body needs to inform the immune system. So we're in a kind of a technically tricky time because there's a lot of things like drug residues in water, herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, rodenticides, farming chemicals, environmental chemicals, industrial chemicals that absolutely cannot be filtered out of water. So you might want to consider what your water source is. Also, you can get toxicity in water from pipes, especially lead pipes in older buildings. Or even copper pipes can become toxic. Um, I have seen water that's too high in copper and it, it... some sources say it can be coming from the pipes. So we we need to be aware that uh, we want to drink the highest quality, cleanest water from natural sources. The best water sources are artesian wells. Artesian wells, artesian water means that the earth has processed the water and it bubbles up on its own. We don't have to suck it out of the ground. We can if we put a pump in there to to you know use it as a well, but if it's rising up on its own, that's the highest quality of water we can drink. And you can look at the work of a man who's world famous for his research on water, Victor Schauberger. I charge my water by surrounding it in stone formations. I have these big cone formations of stones at my home in my office, and those stones basically act like uh, musicians in an orchestra, and because they're each stone is made of atoms, so if you have a stone that's black, it is affected by light and energy different than a crystal, for example, or a stone that's green or a stone that's uh, rose-colored like rose quartz. So each of those stones emits a different color of light, which is a different frequency, which has a different effect on our bodies. But a simple tip for you, if you have water that you that you store like say you go to the store and buy it in jugs one anytime you can get water in glass it's far better than plastic because plastic's full of toxic chemicals such as xenoestrogens that disrupt your hormonal system but if the best you can do is get it in plastic and you go find yourself some stones preferably that alternate in colors so a dark stone a light stone a dark stone a light stone and you allow that water to uh, allow the stones to be somewhere they can see light. It's best if you cover the water because water does better if it's kept in the dark and cool. Victor Schauberger showed that when sunlight hits water and warms it up, it actually weakens the energy carrying capacity of the water. But let's say you have a five gallon jug of 
water from a company like Sparklets or or any 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 such place like that, and you cover it up, but you circle the base of the stones with uh, base of the water with stones, that will charge the water. It'll produce a frequency, an electromagnetic frequency that will affect the water, and that actually keeps the water moving at a microscopic level. You won't see it with your eye, but the science of water is too technical to get into for a podcast like this, where we have many topics, but I've never, ever had anybody that tasted my charged water that could not tell a difference when compared to uncharged water. So circling your water with stones, if you can get bigger stones, great. There are also now water charging systems available from various companies, and Rudolf Steiner developed things called flow forms, and so did Victor Schauberger, and there is now various companies that sell uh, water charging and structuring technologies built based on the work of Rudolf Steiner and Victor Schauberger, and now other people who are using scientific uh, advancements to build them as well. There's a website site called findaspring.com and it tells you uh, where to find spring water from all over the world, which is a very good idea. So keeping your water cool and in the dark whenever possible will also enhance the potential of your water. In his amazing book, Your Body's Many Cries for Water by F. Batman Gilich, MD, a book I highly recommend to everybody, he informs us that even 1% dehydration of our central nervous system can cause significant psychological problems. So think of all the people who are now having mood regulation problems, bipolar problems, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and many, many other such psychological problems that literally may simply be dehydrated. Remember, the Hippocratic Oath is first do no harm. So when we can top ourselves up on water, which is so simple and easy to do, and then see if any of our symptoms go away, then we're doing something that is easy to do and safe to do in general and might save us from dangerous medical drugs with problematic side effects. Based on my research, both in the literature and practical research with myself and clients, I found on average we need to drink about half our body weight in ounces of water a day. So if you're a 200-pound man, you need 100 ounces of water. If you live in a country that uses the kilogram system, take your body weight in kilograms and multiply it by 0.033 and you will get liters of water needed to drink per day. So a 200-pound man will need to drink 3.3 liters per day uh, to to be adequately hydrated. A 100-pound woman will need uh, basically half that. So um, that gives you a working estimate. Again, many people have told me, oh, that's wrong. It's too much water. We're getting water out of food, we're getting water out of other things we drink, but they are making the mistake because they don't realize that water does not have to go through the digestive process and water has the ability to absorb toxins and dilute toxins 
but foods are very limited and other drinks are limited because they're already laden with various other elements and chemicals. So now sleep. Sleep is the most cost-effective medicine there is. In fact, it's free. Sleep is one of the most well-used medical treatments for almost every kind of disease and ailment there is. Bed rest. That study medicine as far back as you can go all the way into native tribal medicines and the writings of medicine men, and you will see sleep is one of the most commonly mentioned thing things there is. But we have a world of sleep-deprived people. I was doing research on sleep not long ago and found that the a study showed the average college student is getting 4.5 hours of sleep a night. That's very, very dangerous. In my experience Everybody needs eight hours of sleep a night as an adult until proven otherwise. If you can get by on less and be healthy, and I can run tests on you that demonstrate your health, then fantastic. But that's very, very rare. Occasionally, you'll find someone that can get by on seven and a half hours of sleep. As we age, we tend to need less sleep for a variety of reasons that show up in sleep research. But the other thing is that children, especially when they're growing, need more sleep. Uh, young kids like my three-year-old need anywhere between 10 and 13 hours a night in order to re- repair their body and, and give the body the time it needs for growth. Um, we do most of our body and uh, psychogenic or mind and nervous system repair uh, at night. So, we we um, really need that repair time or our body just can't keep up with the demands of being active in the world and, and running our brains. In fact, I was studying a course, a university course through the great courses or the teaching company uh, that came out not too long ago on all the current sleep science and they showed that they now have objective evidence from brain scans that in the first year after having a baby, a mother's brain actually physically shrinks because they're so deprived on sleep that the brain cannot repair itself. And so the term that most of you will know, especially if you're a mother, that is that it goes hand in hand with that first year of being a mother is called baby brain. You can't remember things. They forget where they left their keys. They can even forget their own phone numbers and key numbers or numbers to locks that are push-button locks and things that we normally don't forget because we could get locked out or have no money. We also dream when we sleep. And when we dream, many interesting things happen. There's a lot of debate on this, but when I look at the uh, works of the people I trust the most, having done a lot of research in these areas in my life, some of the things that happen when we're dreaming is we are integrating. We are the mind is is basically doing the equivalent of defragmenting a computer or rebooting. We are also dealing with processing and digesting challenging thoughts and emotions and experiences that we can't handle during the uh, waking day. Um the the dream messages come symbolically and there's there's a lot of great research carl jung was was one of the leaders in 
dream analysis, and I'm a student of dream assessment, have been doing it for many years with my clients, and it's amazing what comes out of it. But we also have to be careful, especially now with all the legalization of marijuana, because marijuana has a blocking effect on our ability to dream. So a lot of people find when they stop using marijuana, all of a sudden they start dreaming again. So in a nutshell, when we sleep, we dream, and dream has integrative functions, and it helps us balance our nervous system and our hormonal system, and it helps us process challenging thoughts, feelings, emotions, and traumas, and gives us important symbolic messages. Uh, A great book for dream analysis is Dreaming on Both Sides of the Brain by Doris E. Cohen. Fantastic book. When we give our body a break from the activities of the ego mind, then we don't have near as much stress. So when we are asleep, we go into a state of unconsciousness. So there, all of our fears and our thoughts and to-do lists and inner dialogue about what we don't like about ourselves and other people and all that kind of stuff is no longer at play. So the system can rest and we can repair. So if we don't give ourselves a break from consciousness, then we end up suffering the side effects of our conscious contents. And these are the kinds of things I'll get into as we go through the series. When our glands and organs don't get to rest, then we can't repair them. And one of the things that people make the big mistake of doing is eating late at night or right before bed, which is a very, very bad idea if you want to evolve your body and be a healthy person. My recommendation for the athletes I work with and for the people I work with, be they patients or people in mental, emotional, or spiritual counseling and coaching with me, is to do your best not to eat after six o'clock at night If you eat right for your individual metabolic needs and you have the right balance of fats, proteins, and carbohydrates, your body will make it comfortably through the night because your metabolism slows down, your mind shuts down, so you don't need so much food to make it through the night like you would during the day when you're awake. If you have a healthy body, you might be able to handle eating as late as 7 o'clock, but if you eat The later you eat, the more your organs and glands have to work all night to digest food. And one of the key side effects of that is even after eight hours of sleep, you can wake up still feeling tired and foggy and lethargic. So that's a very, very important tip for you. If you want to get healthy and evolve, then you have to have enough sleep. And you also need to be careful about how late you're eating and what you're putting into your body before you go to bed. Sleep is so important, I have an entire chapter devoted to it in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, and I go into it in much greater detail than I can here, but I wanted to share some practical tips with you, which I will do throughout this series. Now we go into the yang expressions of the six foundation principles, and we're going to start with breathing. Well, the average person breathes, interestingly, and Steiner was uh, was one of the first people I saw actually share these numbers, although I have heard Joseph Campbell in some of his lectures citing ancient information from the Vedas and from yogis thousands of years ago citing these same amazing things. 
but the average person breathes 25,900 times a day, and 25,900 is exactly the number of years it takes our sun and solar system to make one lap of the Milky Way galaxy, and that's the length of the Mayan long count that just ended in 2012, where people thought the world was coming to an end, but they didn't realize it's just the end of a cycle and the beginning of a new cycle. So why do I cite this? So that you once again see that your body, right down to the breaths that you take, is part of the cosmos. It's woven into the cosmos. And there's books in my library that describe many, many others of the cycles in our body and how they correlate to nature. And Steiner talked a lot about these things. When we breathe, we bring in oxygen. Oxygen is highly paramagnetic. Paramagnetic substances are substances that have an affinity for the south pole of a magnet. So there, there's a book called Paramagnetism by Philip Callahan. If you really want to understand that, it's, it's an excellent book to help you understand this. It's very, very important, for example, in farming. There's many other things I could tell you about paramagnetism if I had more time. But when we bring in oxygen, which is the most paramagnetic substance ever measured, the highest rating on the scale, Philip Callahan was the scientist that figured all this out first. He showed that oxygen has a paramagnetic rating of 4,000, so it's the very highest there is. But our body tissues in water are diamagnetic. They have an affinity for the north pole of a magnet, and what that does is when we breathe, it sets up a charge differential. So just like any battery has a north pole and a, south, a positive pole and a negative pole or a magnet, a north and a south pole, if we don't breathe effectively, then we don't have enough charge differential to energize our cells and run our bodily systems and support our immune system. And if you look at the work of Jerry Tennant, MD, who's got some books out there and has some excellent information on these topics and how the cells function and how much energy they need and, and um, you know, concepts of healing voltage, you'll see that if we're not breathing well, which there's many situations that lead to faulty breathing patterns such as fear, stress, trauma, uh, poor posture, muscle imbalance syndromes from not exercising properly or being sedentary, then we don't develop enough charge differential in our bodies to run our biological systems. And breathing produces the charge differential that essentially holds the soul in the body. When you stop breathing, you die. Your soul leaves your body. The air we breathe is also charged with a, a powerful, subtle energy called prana. And the Indians have been talking about this, the, the native healers, and but the Indians from India the great healers and sages and yogis have described prana way before science figured out what it was, but again, science has caught up. And it's highly charged, and it's linked not only to our vital energies, and prana is a form of chi or life force energy. And if you want to learn more about prana, you can look at the book Life Force that I mentioned earlier by physicist Claude Swanson, and you'll learn all about chi and the many derivations of it. But in alchemy, the air element is linked to our mental functions. So when we get to the third episode, I'll talk more about that. 
Oxygen is essential for our metabolism. So we have all these metabolic syndromes, but it's extremely rare. In my 35 years of clinical practice, I can count the number of people that had a normal breathing pattern on one hand, literally. I've worked with some of the best athletes in the world, as I mentioned, and I've never found a single athlete that when I tested them had a normal breathing pattern. Why? Because very few therapists check this. Most strength and conditioning specialists don't assess or know how to correct these things. And so we all have traumatic experiences. We all have challenges from childhood and relationships and money stress. So most people just aren't breathing because they've got a fear pattern, which is a chest breathing pattern. And there are other patterns that I teach my students in my advanced training programs to look for and correct. One of the things that few people realize is that anybody that's eating processed sugar will never have a normal breathing rhythm because processed sugar is a very powerful acid and immediately begins to acidify the blood and the body has to use oxygen to alkalinize the blood so your breathing rate speeds up. And when your breathing rate speeds up beyond normal, it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system or the fight or flight branch of the nervous system, which then triggers the release of adrenaline and cortisol. And if that goes on too often or too much, it stops you from having the ability to sleep effectively because cortisol is a functional antagonist to melatonin and you can't drop into a sleep state effectively or you might sleep, but you don't get a restful sleep and you can't go into the deeper sleep phases that are necessary for healing. If our breathing rate is optimal, or we use exercises like the yogic exercise 4-6-8 breathing, where you take a nice deep belly breath for four seconds, hold that breath for six seconds, and then slowly breathe out, through the mouth or nose. You always want to breathe in through the nose. You can breathe out through the mouth or nose and breathe out for eight seconds. If you do that for even three minutes, you'll shift from a sympathetic state to a parasympathetic state. And the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic system has a calming effect on the body. Now there's much more, but I don't want to make this too technical. It's very important to inhale through our nose. Our nose has turbinates in it. If you look at an anatomy book, you can see these veins. It looks like the bones kind of curl. And those turbinates are lined with hair and mucus. And the hairs are tickled by the movement of air. And that stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system and helps balance our autonomic nervous system. We have a lot of immune antibodies in our mucous membrane, secretory immunoglobulin A, secretory IgA it's called. And that's our first line of defense from things coming in on air, such as bacteria, viruses, and fungal spores that can um, get in our body or even parasites. So if we're not breathing through our nose effectively and we're breathing through our mouth, the instant we start breathing through our, our mouth, we go into a sympathetic dominant situation because in nature we're designed to breathe through our nose for these reasons. And if we have to breathe through our mouth. It either means we're working really hard or we're running or fighting for our life. And so when people are eating foods that they're having immune reactions to and it produces too much phlegm, 
it clogs their nasal airways up and they end up breathing through their mouth all the time. That winds up the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight system, which causes the body to produce adrenaline and cortisol, which then eventually burns your adrenal glands out and you end up getting more and more chronically fatigued until you end up with what will be a label called chronic fatigue syndrome. And that's tied with a lot of other syndromes. So uh, we have to be conscious of these things. Now, a simple technique to learn to breathe properly is to just sit or stand with good posture, put one hand over your belly button and the other hand on your chest, and simply remember the two-thirds, one-third rule. As you inhale through your nose, your belly should expand for the first two-thirds of the breath, and the chest should only begin to expand in the last one-third of the breath. Very few people breathe that way unless they're focusing on it. And if they don't practice, they forget. And if you're eating too much processed, refined sugars, no matter how hard you try, you'll never be able to fix that because your ventilation rate will go up, which will trigger a fight or flight response, which makes your brain think that you're running or fighting for your life. And then you develop, eventually you'll develop what I call a fear pattern which is chest breathing and often tight abdominals, which cuts your average breath volume down by at least one third. And that was identified a long time ago. Joel E. Goldthwaite in the book Body Mechanics in Health and Disease, published in 1934, showed analysis of diaphragmatic movement and showed that the average person is only getting about two-thirds of normal air volume, which leads to all sorts of problems uh, that we've discussed. Now, a technique I developed to help people reprogram themselves to breathe effectively that you can easily apply, one of my gifts for listening to the podcast, is simply get a piece of kite string, tie it around your belly button so it's just against the skin, it doesn't have to be hot, tight, and every hour on the hour, set a clock or a watch or a phone to beep on the hour, as you breathe in, expand your belly into the string so you can feel the string getting tight. That gives you a feedback mechanism to let you know you're expanding your belly. And then again, only in the last third of the breath, breathe with your chest. And while you're doing those, what I call centering breaths with your string, imagine that as you inhale, you're like a tree growing up toward the sun and you're evolving, you're growing. And as you exhale, imagine that out of your feet, you're growing roots down into the earth that helps stabilize you. And that way you can withstand the storms, the heavy winds of emotion or physical challenges or or surprises that you didn't expect, like losing a job, a death in the family, or uh you know, finding, you know, the challenges of being a parent in that first year or two and lacking a lot of sleep. Breathing is the catalyst in most all spiritual development practices from meditation to mindfulness to managing one's mind and emotions. So uh, isn't it interesting that almost all spiritual development systems begin with focusing awareness on breath? Why? Because as I said earlier, without breathing, the soul cannot anchor itself in the body. 
and the soul is the consciousness within you. So in order to evolve, you must be conscious or you cannot learn. Consciousness is the essentially one aspect of consciousness is the total information carrying capacity of any system, living or otherwise. So if you uh, don't breathe well, then your biological system shut down and you go into a fight or flight state and you cannot expand your uh, knowledge base effectively because it's very, very hard to learn when the body's in a fight or flight state. It's thinking you've got to run from a lion. That's not a good time to take out a, a, a you know an anatomy book or a book on how to pass your driver's test because your brain has no interest in those kinds of things. It thinks it's running or fighting for its life. So there's a few little tips on breathing. And this is the kind of information that I teach my athletes that I coach, my my people that consult me just because they want to improve their health and vitality, or those that want to grow spiritually, or those that come to me with health challenges. And this is the kind of training my students get through the Czech Institute and much more. This is very brief. I have an entire two-day course just on breathing and movement alone. Finally, we get to thinking. Well, not finally. We still have movement. And we have to remember, thoughts are coupled with language, a set of symbols that allows us to make meaning of our experiences and communicate to each other. Our thoughts and emotions are very influenced by such factors as our level of rest, hydration, diet, and lifestyle factors. It's quite simple. A toxic body generally produces toxic thoughts, or you, your mind and body mirror each other. That's one of the key principles of alchemy. As above, so below. A sick body does not produce a healthy mind. A sick mind will not produce a healthy body. So, we're going we're gonna to get uh, nicely into the issues of evolution of our mind, and that's where we get into thoughts. But for now, since we're covering the basics of the body, and it is choices that we have to make to evolve our body, I wanted to cover thinking, and it's one of the six foundation principles that I teach through my holistic lifestyle coaching program. So, as I said, we will explore thinking and the mind much more deeply as we move forward in the series. And then finally, we come to movement. Well, stated simply, life is movement. If, if you can't move, then you're dying. Every breath you take requires movement. So if your way of living is limiting your ability to breathe because of bad posture, bad diet, bad lifestyle, lack of exercise, illness, disease, trapped emotions, then you're becoming less evolved because you're becoming less alive and you cannot evolve in your body unless you're in your body. (laughs) So if you die, your evolution halts at least at this level of reality. On average, we need between 30 and 60 minutes of exercise daily. The range there is because there's different types of exercise at different intensities or densities of exercise. If you go to the gym and do a circuit workout, that's not necessarily intense, but it's very dense, like taking a Zumba class. In 30 minutes of Zumba, you can get as much exercise as 60 minutes just going out for a nice walk. So 
if you're getting at least 30 minutes of movement a day, that's probably a good minimum. But ultimately, it depends on what your dream goal or objective is as to how much exercise you need to have the fitness and the readiness to meet that objective. Now, when it comes to movement, we have two classes of movement. This is a system I developed of categorization. Working out, we're all familiar with, it's catabolic. When we work out, it means we expend energy and resources outward that we later have to recuperate through rest and through diet and maintenance practices such as stretching or joint mobilization or massage or other things like that. We work out to gain strength and improve movement skills so that we can evolve physically, be it as a sportsman or just for general movement and activities of daily living or whatever is needed to achieve our dream. Exercise helps metabolize toxins. I've actually seen studies where they analyzed the ability for a group of non-exercisers to clear a given dose of uh, caffeine given in pill form, and then they took a group of bodybuilders, and they found that bodybuilders could clear caffeine much more efficiently or faster than the non-exercisers And so having looked at this, I've seen many instances, even in my own life, where I'm able to clear toxins and others are able to clear toxins of a wide variety through the fire of metabolism, because as we increase our volume and intensity of exercise, we generally increase our metabolism. So there's your next tip. Exercise or movement is linked to our metabolism and I don't know about you, but I really enjoy eating. So sometimes I exercise because I just enjoy eating. And I know if I don't exercise, I can't eat as much without clogging my body up. Moving, working in or out also pumps our bodies and helps clean our bodies. So remember, we need to support our heart every time you contract muscle it. It moves blood toward the heart and supports venous return. But people that are sedentary have all sorts of problems and things like high blood pressure and other issues such as uh, vascular problems because the system gets weak and the heart gets overloaded because it's doing all the work by ourselves. And working out, of course, is a great way to shape your body. If you want to craft the body of your dreams, then Exercise is the ultimate tool when coupled with sound diet and rest or four-doctor principles. Working in means we are using movements that bring us more energy per unit of time than it costs to do the exercise. When we're working out, we're spending more energy and resources per unit of time than the exercise can deliver. So I developed the concept of working in to help educate people of the importance of balancing working out and working in. And I did this based on my uh, work with Master Fong Ha and my Tai Chi studies. I've studied medical Qigong and, and practiced that and used that. And of course, as I said, I was raised by a yogi mother and learned meditation and Yogananda was big on these types of exercises that have these types of effects on our body. So I came up with a concept of working in our heart, our brain, and our guts, or all the things controlled by our solar, solar plexus, 
are called biological oscillators. And HeartMath's research, and there's a great book called HeartMath by Doc Chilry, and I can't remember his partner's name, but you can find it easily on Amazon by the name HeartMath. Um, they showed that when we do these movements where our body movements are time to breathing, if we do that and keep our breathing rhythmical and don't push ourselves to the point that we elevate respiratory rate or breathing rate, particularly then our biological oscillators harmonize with each other like singers or musicians uh, in a band, and then we become much more efficient, we relax much more, and we can much more easily shift into a parasympathetic or regeneration repair state and a calming state. Working in cultivates life force energy or chi, and that's one of the key reasons I do it, especially you know, for 25 years, I traveled all over the world from conference to conference on airplanes, and it was very demanding on my body, constantly shifting time zones, going from state to state to country to country. So for over 15 years, I rarely ever missed a day of doing my Tai Chi practice or my work-in practice. Now I mix it with meditations and various other types of work-in practices, but it kept me quite free of illness. In fact, I have not missed a day of work due to illness in 35 years, my entire professional career. I attribute a lot of that to my four doctor practices and working in. Working in calms the mind. It allows us to better feel our inner world and process our emotions. Ideally, when you're doing work and exercises, it's best to be barefoot touching the earth or stone even concrete, as long as it's not painted, will connect you to the earth. So that helps ground us and pull all the chaotic electromagnetic pollution out of our body, which is very, very therapeutic. It enhances a myriad of bodily functions, such as improved immune function, and there is literally mountains of research now on Tai Chi and Qigong, and it is mind-blowing how uh, powerfully effective is on balancing the hormonal system and regulating physiological systems, calming the mind, restoring normal breathing patterns, and all sorts of amazing stuff. And it's easy to do. It also slows the aging process. The Taoist masters say that we're each born with a predetermined number of heartbeats per lifetime. Now, if you get hit by a car, of course, or fall off a ladder and die, or get shot in battle, that that isn't so relevant, but if we look at the fact that almost all Tai Chi and Qigong masters look 10 to 20 years younger than their actual chronological age, it's obvious that these types of practices have an anti-aging effect, which is far better than plastic surgery. So when you do work in practices, you find that your resting heart rate starts to slow down and you become much more efficient and you become more efficient at everything you do and more effectively emotionally and mentally self-managed, which means you're not having nearly as much of uh, as frequent or as large of a stress reaction in your typical life, and therefore you spare heartbeats, you extend your life. Now, as our kind of closing gift to you, we can all practice a breathing squat if you can't do it because you're driving or you're doing something that doesn't allow it, then you can practice it when you get a chance. But simply standing up right now 
and start by inhaling and raising your arms up over your head as you inhale so that the top of your inhalation, when you just fill your lungs, your hands are at the top above your head. Then as you begin to exhale, just slowly lower your arms and squat down like you're going to sit in a chair. If you have poor balance, you can actually just put a chair behind you and squat till your butt just touches the surface of the chair. And right when you reach the bottom of the squat where you're comfortable should be the end of your exhalation. And then you just start back up. And as you're coming out of the squat and raising your arms, you're inhaling And then you just exhale as you go down and you keep doing that. Ten minutes of that can just totally change the whole way you feel. And remember, as you're breathing in, you want the belly to expand for two-thirds of the breath and the chest only in the last one-third of the breath. Now, if you are weak or deconditioned and doing squats all the way down to parallel or lower, starts making your heart rate speed up. Remember, for a work in practice, your heart rate should not speed up. Your breathing rate should not speed up. Another one is you should be able to comfortably do it on a full stomach. And finally, your tongue should not dry out. If you start going into a work out, then the moisture will begin to leave your mouth. But when you're moving in a work in and it activates the parasympathetic system, You'll find after a few minutes of this, you have so much saliva, you start swallowing your own saliva because that's part of the parasympathetic system for aiding digestion of food. So there's another tip. It helps you digest food. That's why you can do it on a full stomach and it feels good. If you just practice 10 minutes of breathing squats or even two minutes of breathing squats multiple times throughout the day, you will definitely notice things are starting to harmonize in you and you will feel very, very much better. And the more you practice, the better it works. That's just the rule out there. What you practice, you create. If you practice, you know, avoiding exercise, then you create the product of that, which is sedentary, unhealthy bodies. If you practice uh, being critical of other people and judging and having a closed mind, then you mirror that in yourself. So it's been a fantastic journey with you. I hope you've enjoyed my first podcast on evolution of the body, evolving your body. Um, very grateful that you joined me today. Now you have a little taste of what a Czech professional learns. Uh, a nice small little two-hour or so uh, bite-sized taste with uh, I gave you as many practical tips as I could so that you can really practice some of these things. As I say to my students, don't believe a word I say, test it. I could be just a talking head. There's plenty of them out there. They call them professors. That's one name for them. And so Remember, it's not wise to learn things from people that don't have what they're teaching you. There's an old saying, dead doctors don't lie. So I hope you're excited about evolving your body and making it easier for everyone in your family's future to overcome any resistance to being happy, healthy, and whole. As I shared with Rupert Sheldrake's research and Bruce Lipton's research, 
we can change our genes and we can support others in not having to deal with the challenges that the people in our past in our family have dealt with. We can live a more vital, more fulfilling life. And when we evolve, we create freedom for ourselves and it's easier to be happy when you have more freedom. At least that's my experience. So thank you for joining me. Next, we will get into evolution of the emotions and our experience with emotions and tips for understanding emotions and instincts and things that are linked to emotions. And from there, we'll go to the mind. Then we'll go to evolving spiritually and we'll finish with evolving through your vocation or career. Look forward to sharing more with you real soon. Thanks for listening to this special Evolve session of Living 4D with Paul Check. If you'd like to ask Paul about how you could implement the tips and techniques you learned here, join him on Instagram Live on Saturday, March 30th at 12 p.m. Pacific Time. Follow Paul on Instagram at paul.check to get notifications when he goes live. For more information on Evolve with the Czech Institute, visit czechinstitute.com forward slash Evolve 2019. You'll learn all about a powerful one-day event on May 3rd that will empower you to fuel your own personal and professional evolution. To listen to more episodes of Living 4D with Paul Czech, go to czechinstitute.com forward slash podcast or youtube.com Living 4D with Paul Czech.